Hey everybody, uh, today is Thursday, October the 28th, and uh, I'm coming to you with a special bonus episode of our Sermon Audio Podcast. So if you're listening to this and you are a regular attender or a member of True North Church, then uh, this should be something you expected. Hopefully I had an opportunity on Sunday, October 24th to share the plan that I would need to split the chapter I had originally planned to preach in one Sunday morning, one 40-minute setting, which was Exodus 17, to divide that into half so that I could do both halves justice. Hopefully, if you were with us in person on the 24th, you could tell why we needed so much time to dig into the concept of God standing at the Rock of Horeb, receiving the judgment of his people, the connection to uh, Psalm 95, and then uh, Hebrews 3, and then eventually 1 Corinthians 10, where the Apostle Paul attributes the spiritual presence of Christ to that event. Just a lot of layers and uh, needing to be able to explain those things in a way that's clear. I never, ever want to um, present information that to you feels detached from the text or that I'm not able to explain to you uh, and give it plenty of time. So for that, that sake, in order to make time to do that on Sunday the 24th today, I'm going to be talking you through the remainder, the last uh, nine verses of Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8 and reading through verse 16. This is a second account uh, that's going to have a similar theme. Uh, the primary theme of the verses that we looked at on Sunday was judgment. God's judgment, ultimately the people trying to judge him, though they were guilty and needed to be judged, and God allowing them to judge him, and then ultimately himself to judge him by way of his own staff uh, in Moses' hands, that he came out innocent, yet he was willing to follow through with that in order to communicate to his people love and mercy, generosity, and really Christ-likeness. We see uh, lots of glimmers of the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, in the way that God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, interacts with his people uh, throughout the book of Exodus. So to kick us off here, I will read uh, verses 8 through 16 of Exodus 17. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So where is Rephidim? Rephidim is uh, the place that God's people have been passing along to. Massah and Meribah are probably on the way. Uh, but the people have camped at Rephidim, which is sort of like a larger region in the area, uh, the foothills of Mount Sinai. And the Amalekites hear about this somehow. They know that that's where Israel is. And so they come and attack God's people. Verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, this is the first time that we encounter Joshua in the Old Testament. Moses said, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I, Moses, will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, his brother Aaron, and a man named Hur, H-U-R, went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, they won, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, and so they, Aaron and Hur, took a stone and put it underneath Moses, and he sat on it like a bench. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, Moses' hands, one stood on either side of him, holding up his arms. So his hands were steady until the sun went down. Verse 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and Amalek's people, the Amalekites, with the sword. Verse 14. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And what that means is to recite it in the ears doesn't mean Moses is supposed to like sneak up on Joshua from behind and scream into his ears what God has done. God is intending for this to be recited more than one time. And he understands, because he's God, 
the future that Joshua is going to have, how many times he's going to encounter the Amalekites again and again and again as he tries to lead the people over into the promised land after Moses passes the baton at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. We'll finish the chapter uh, with verse 15. Moses built an altar and he named the altar, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to to generation. In verse 16, the English Standard Version translates the Hebrew manuscript to say, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. But that includes a footnote. And if you read that footnote, it tells you that we don't know exactly what that phrase means. That's not a common, that's not like good morning in English. We understand that good morning is less a comment on whether the morning is good and more so an intention of well-wishing to another person. I hope you have a good morning. Uh, In Hebrew, this phrase, we don't know what it means. Is it commenting on something that's just true? Is it commenting in a way that's supposed to show intention, like to say to somebody, I hope you have a good day? What I would say is my understanding of Hebrew, and look, I'm not on the translation committee for the English Standard Version. I'm not at all trying to say that those guys are wrong, but I think it's my responsibility to present alternate understandings to you, the listener. Another way to understand this, and the way that I read it, is a hand against the throne or the name of the Lord is a way you can read it in Hebrew. In other words, I believe Moses is not appealing so much to someone crying out to God for help as much as he is signifying that this place represents the first time a foreign nation has lifted their hands up in combat against God and God's people. In other words, um, If you've ever seen two people prepare for a street fight, uh, the public high school I went to in East Texas, this would happen at lunchtime three or four times a week. Typically, people ball their fists, they pick their hands up, and they put them anywhere from the middle of their chest up to the top of their forehead. That's the kind of idea that Moses is communicating in in the name uh, where he says in verse 16, a hand upon the throne or hands against. In other words, these people were set against God's people. Uh, and attacked them. Now that's important because as we try to understand what's going on in this passage, there's a few firsts that show up. I mentioned one of them to you. This is the first time that Joshua appears in the account of the Old Testament in any meaningful sense. Um, There's an explanation of him. It's kind of assumed, it's almost um, implied that he's a military leader. It was uh, obvious for Moses to turn to Joshua to actually rally the troops and order them together and get them weaponry and armor and everything they would need to go to battle. Moses is not himself the field general as much as he is uh, maybe the, the general back at HQ because he's the interpreter for God. He's the one letting God's people know how to respond to their circumstances and preparing them for what's coming next. God gives Moses insight throughout the book of Exodus. Now, to me, a second first that's worth mentioning here is this is the first time God's people have gone to war post-Egypt. You may remember in the explanation of why God took his people southeast instead of northeast to get to the promised land. Um, Moses' perspective of God's intention when he wrote Exodus is that God wanted his people to not have to go through the land of the Philistines, who were a uh, militarily advanced, technologically advanced civilization at the point that God's people left Egypt. So it's interesting, it's been now a number of months, it's probably been between three and six months since God's people left Egypt. Obviously, based on what we read on Sunday, they're still whining against God, they don't really trust him, they still think they can go back, though every day that they're in the desert, it's much harder to actually physically return, their hearts are still set on that. But this is the first moment that this new pseudo-nation of people, a million and a half people is a lot of people for this era in world history, as they snake their way across this desert, other tribes are beginning to hear that uh, something 
new is going on in the Sinai wilderness, that there's this new group of people. Nobody really knows who they are. They've heard that maybe they're slaves. They know the signs that Yahweh has done. That's evidenced in the Song of Moses that we read after God's people crossed the Red Sea. But these tribes don't have any personal firsthand experience with Yahweh yet. It's all reputation. And so for the Amalekites, I guess from their perspective, they feel that it's appropriate and necessary to shoot their shot here and see what God's going to actually do. Uh, Was he going to defend his people? Is it all just sort of mythological grandstanding? Or is there really a divine presence in play here? If I can clarify something for you, if you've heard this preached before, um, and it's possible that you have because this is a pretty famous story in the Old Testament, you may have heard this uh, taught as a story that's about prayer. The thinking along those lines goes that while Moses is praying on the mountain, the battle in the valley below goes well, and vice versa. If he stops praying, if he lowers his hands, then the battle goes poorly. The problem with that is that there is no reference to prayer in any of these verses. Moses does not say in verse 9 he's going to go pray. Instead, he says he's going to hold up the staff of God. In the New International Version translation, uh, verse 11 of chapter 17 reads like this. As long as as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. What's interesting is uh, the first time that hand shows up, Uh, it's singular. So what actually verse 11 reads as in Hebrew is, as long as Moses held up his hand, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. The second hands is plural. The first one is singular. Why does that matter? Because the hand that held the staff of God is the hand that matters. It's the staff of God that matters. It's not the prayer posture of Moses. It's not whether or not he's faithful or right or following through and God's somehow fickle and petty and or locked in heaven and can't do anything like Santa Claus in the movie Elf. You have to believe in him to give him power. That's not true. It's the staff of God held up or not that is representing judgment by God against the enemies of God, in this case, physically, literally, the Amalekites. This is the same staff, and we talked about this on Sunday, that struck the Nile uh, at the beginning of the plagues in Exodus in chapter 7. But again, in chapter 8, it was used, in chapter 9, in chapter 10, in chapter 14, it'll be used again in chapters 26 and 27. This is also the staff with which Moses struck God in chapter 17, verse 6, in the story that we looked at on Sunday, a sign that God himself would take the judgment that his people deserve. Now, in this story, in the battle against the Amalekites, this staff of judgment is lifted up against them. And as long as God's judgment is symbolically directed against the Amalekites by way of the Um, staff being held up, the battle goes well. And as Moses' hands steadily hold aloft his staff, verse 13 tells us that Joshua overcame the Amalekite army. This is a story of judgment. When Moses says, tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands, verse 9, I think it's interesting that he decides to take a night to sleep on this, a delay. Uh, I don't know this for sure, but it's possible that this is based on his experience because throughout the account of the plagues on Egypt, God would bring judgment tomorrow, quote unquote tomorrow. He would act in judgment. He would tell Moses, I'm going to do this tomorrow. Or they would tell Pharaoh, God's going to show himself tomorrow. Um, so I think maybe that's the way that Moses uh, is is expecting God to work. In both chapters 9 and 10, in 9.22 and 10.12, Moses raised his hand in very much the same way with the staff of God in an act of judgment. And when Israel was saved at the Red Sea through an act of God's judgment, again, Moses is told to stretch out or to raise his arm. That's chapter 14. All of this suggests that in this story, in chapter 17, Moses raises the staff in an act of divine judgment 
very similar to God's judgment on Egypt. And then at the end of this account, verses 14 through 16, that seems to be God's perspective as well. God tells Moses to, quote, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered or or in a way that it ought to be uh, followed up upon or recited openly, publicly. And it's particularly important that Joshua remember that God will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under the heavens. The history of Joshua past this point, once he receives the baton of leadership over Israel from Moses at the end of Moses' life at the conclusion of the book of Deuteronomy, Joshua will continue God's judgment. He will continue to mete out God's judgment on God's enemies by way of military conquest heading into the promised land. So he has to remember as he does that, not just that God will judge or that some kind of judgment will come against God's enemies, but that it is God's judgment. That's who the judgment belongs to. The stress that leads to this conflict between Israel and Amalek is a running theme throughout the whole Old Testament, really. A year later, in Numbers chapter 14, the Amalekites again attack Israel, and this time they do it in alliance with the Canaanites. Um, The Amalekites are initially part of the reason why the people turn back from entering the Promised Land. In the book of Numbers, when the 12 spies go in, uh, they come back and give an account of how big and strong and dug in the Amalekites are, which eventually leads to a whole generation of Israelites dying in the wilderness in judgment because they don't have faith in God. The Amalekites go on even into the book of Judges, Joshua and Judges, to oppose God's people all the way into the book of 1 Samuel, one of the accounts of how God raises up his kingdom in the promised land, just like Exodus 17, 16 predicts. In Moses' final sermon, he calls upon the people of God to wipe out the Amalekites. The Amalekites were defeated by Gideon in Judges, by Saul in 1 Samuel, but are not finally destroyed historically until the reign of Hezekiah, which is in 1 Chronicles chapter 4. Even in the reading of the book of Esther, it seems that Haman, the primary bad guy in the book of Esther, he is called Haman the Agagite, which is interesting because the last Amalekite king was Agag, or Agog, you might say, A-G-A-G. And this is whom Samuel killed in 1 Samuel 15. So maybe even the Amalekites go all the way into the time of exile in the time of Esther. But it doesn't only stretch forward, right? This stress and this pain between God's people and the Amalekites that we see pictured here in chapter 17 for the first time, it has roots in the past. The Amalekites are named after a man named Amalek, who is a grandson of Esau. Esau is a brother of Jacob. The Israelites, God's people, are descended from Jacob, who eventually has his name changed to Israel. So you have Amalek, a grandson of Esau, and you have Israel, who's the brother of Esau, and they have been opposed to one another since Jacob stole the birthright and eventually the legacy of being the father of the Israelites from Esau. Exodus 17 is just the latest in a long line of stress points between Esau and Jacob, conflict between Esau and Jacob. And even that story of brother against brother is itself a reflection and a carryover from the initial enmity between Cain and Abel, the first brothers and sons of Adam and Eve. And if we go back further than that, even between God and his enemy, Satan, there is always in the presence of God's people, some who have committed to be aligned with, even if they won't say it, to be aligned with God's enemy. And they can make that choice by way of their own selfishness. They can make that choice legally. They can swear fealty to another God or to another idol. But always when God is present on the earth among a a people group, there are some in that people group, though they may be the right ethnicity or may even have parents who are aligned with the living God, in their own hearts, they represent enemies of God. This war between the people of God and the people of Satan runs through history. In 1 John 3, 
First John 3 is a letter written to Christians after Jesus ascended, after the church is created. And John wrote that we ought not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one or the enemy or the Satan, and as a result, murdered his brother. He asks, why did he murder his brother? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised then, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. So if I can knit all this together for you quickly, what's happening in Exodus 17 between Amalek and Israel is representative of the spiritual tension and conflict that has always lined between God's people and people who follow the prince of the power of the air, the Satan. And that continues to be true for us even as the New Testament coaches us as Christians on how to live as the church in the world, that we shouldn't be surprised that there's going to be hatred from some people because of who we are and whom we have aligned ourselves with, namely Jesus. The fight between Israel and Amalek is a small, regional, tribal conflict, but it is a picture of the battle that has raged since the fall of man in Genesis 3, a battle that still rages today. Now, if I can land the plane here, With the victory secured, Moses has done his job. The men around him have lifted his arms up so that God's judgment is stretched out over the Amalekites and they lose the fight. Moses responds by building an altar. He names the altar, the Lord is my banner or Yahweh is my banner. In the context of the Old Testament, a banner or a standard was what soldiers looked at in battle. It was their rallying point. If you've ever seen um, real, raw, hand-to-hand combat, I mean, even all the way up through the medieval period of time, there's a great movie on Netflix called The King. I think it's called The King with uh, Timothy Chalamet. Um, anyway, there's some scenes in that movie. It's definitely not a kid's movie, but there's some scenes in that movie where you see real dueling hand-to-hand combat in the medieval era, armored knights in the mud, slipping and sliding around. Nobody can see who's on what side. In a battle like that, which is basically a bar fight with swords, you need somebody to hold up a flag so that you go, oh, all of our team are over there. If I go over there, everybody will know I'm on our team and then we'll work together to fight the bad guys. But when you're out in the scrum, you lose track of who's on what side. The opening scenes of the movie Gladiator are also a great representation of this. So it would make sense that Moses sees a need for his people, Israel, to have a rallying point, And he says, Yahweh is that for me. He is my banner. He is my standard. He is the rallying point, the sign by which this army, Israel, stands firm. It's not held by Joshua on the battlefield, though, but it's held by Moses on the hill. The banner is not God's man. The banner is not God's plan. The banner is not God's word. The banner is God himself. And for you and I as New Testament believers, God present in the person of Christ is our rallying point, our standard, our sign of victory. At the point At which this all transpires, God's people are still questioning their identity. They still don't know exactly who they are. They live in a period of time in the world where if you can't fight successfully, you don't really have a future. If you can't defend what's yours with with weapons and armor and tactics, then it's going to be taken from you by someone else who can. And so for God to use a battle like this early in the life of Israel, when they won't go to battle again for a very long time, it's indicative and representative of his legitimacy that he hasn't brought them out of Egypt to die, as they've asked so many times, but has brought them out to change them, to make something new, to start over with creation, beginning with humanity, a new race in Israel, drawn together and marked by God's covenant, not their ethnicity, not their racial ties, not their skin color or the kind of food they like or what translation of the Bible they prefer, but a group of people whose rallying point is the presence of Yahweh in their midst. And that is true for you and I as well. So at the end of chapter 17, we see just what happens when the nations come up against God and God's people. 
When they oppose him, they face judgment. And when they lift hands against God, he lifts hands against them. That'll bring us up to speed for chapter 18. I'll give you just a hint if you take the time to listen this far into today's episode. Chapter 18 is a direct contrast to chapter 17. Whereas we saw in chapter 17 how when the nations raise their hands against God, God puts them in their place and defeats them by way of his judgment, that when the nations come to God and submit to him, they are grafted in and they are able to worship God and know God and be claimed by God, just like anybody else who was born among the Israel people. All right, well, thanks for your time today. I hope this has been a blessing and a help to you. We'll probably have to do this a couple more times, especially as we come down uh, the runway towards the end of the book of Exodus. There's a lot of law to cover, and a lot of it is great for study, but not necessarily great for preaching. And so uh, just stay tuned, stay dialed in. If you're not subscribed, do that just so you can keep track. We don't track numbers. We don't care. It doesn't boost our stats. We're not selling anything. There's obviously no sponsor or commercial attached to this. Uh, But we do try to produce this in a high-quality way. And by subscribing, you can make sure that you're keeping track of it on your end as well. All right, church, thanks for your time. I hope to see you this coming Sunday, October 31st. Until then, be blessed. We'll see you soon.